You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome back, everyone. I get to have a, I get to start us off this week. But first, we have to say hi, because Victoria is here. Hi, Victoria. Hey, I'm here. Yay. Yay. Hey, Victoria. You know, Victoria, it occurs to me, it still says every single week. Yeah, I know. The th- I... Our three names in the intro. Uh, even though you're not here every week, but I'm not changing. She's, it, so. I'm here in spirit. Here with us in with spirit. She's with us in spirit. Here. With I'm us, also right, not right. technically yeah. a professional naturalist anymore. I'm still a naturalist. I feel like I'll always be a naturalist, but I'm not a professional naturalist oh, yeah. anymore. You are a professional and a naturalist, but technically oh, you're okay. no longer a professional naturalist. Right? Exactly. I guess. I mean, I'm a student. I think it still right counts. Now, but whatever. Hey, aren't we all, all right. students? Well, professional anyway. student, maybe. <laughs> There we go. We're all students of life. You're just paying more money than we are to students. (laughs) My goodness. All right. So what were both of your lockdown hobby or things that you learned? Uh, Because I know a lot of people had... Just stick with me. It all will come together. Uh, Because I know a lot Uh of people learned to do new things during lockdown. Like me personally... Uh, I learned how to raise an eyebrow, like a single eyebrow. That was my lockdown <laughs> thing that I that's learned. Great. Wow, that's a good one. Uh, I took the one. time to learn that. Did you all have like a hobby or something that you learned? I had toddlers, so... Valid. No. Right. That's what you were learning. Yes, I was learning toddlers. Valid. Now, Rachel, this is such a loaded question. You, I know. You know that I, I collect hobbies. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, I do. The lockdown was, I, I need no excuse to learn something new. So, um, you know, one thing I did learn that was new that was sort of work related is I did a lot of um, video production work because we took a lot of our uh, teaching online. So I... Mm-hmm took my existing video you know work knowledge and learned all kinds of new streaming platforms and ways to do interactive stuff with people online so that was Mm -hmm. one thing i spent a lot of time learning oh i have one it was a little later in the pandemic but um i don't know if you guys know this i started a podcast with a couple friends oh there is that i was gonna say that as well Uh, you know what that's right i did did start a podcast yeah yeah that is true Mm. (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah like like three years ago. Let yeah, that sink like, in. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yep, that's, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Oh, man. Um, okay, so one ecologist uh, took, uh, one ecologist that was in Germany took work home with her during lockdown and okay. learned something of us did. fascinating. All right. So, how do you Daniela, take work home with you when you're an ecologist? I'm oh, sure you'll wait. enlighten us. I absolutely will. <laughs> so Daniela Rusler had uh-huh. a field near her home. Uh, and during lockdown, as an ecologist, uh, apparently when she was able to go in the field, like field, like 
big F field. Apparently that is a remote place in Brazil, generally for her. So she couldn't oh, go there. The field. The, the, okay, got it. The big F field. All big right, F yeah. field. Uh, so she went to a little field near her home. Uh, and she okay. discovered something okay. really, really cool. This particular field apparently had a bunch of little tiny jumping spiders. Oh, Aww. cute, fun. So Who fun. doesn't like a jumping spider? Exactly. So we've talked about I mean, various... probably lots of people. Lots of people, yeah, yes. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but they should. Talk- They're so cute. They're so cute. So we've talked about various jumping spiders before, like the peacock jumping spider and things. So oh, just to give you a little nice. idea, there's like, there was the this really one, cute yeah. little, yeah, that one too. There was a cute little animation or picture of a spider being passed around on the internet gen- with like big eyes and things like that. Generally speaking, if you picture a cute spider, it's a jumping spider. Yes. Give true. everyone a little bit of an Makes idea. Sense. So... Daniela was observing these spiders, which were very small, like about the size of her pinky fingernail or whatever. So really tiny, pretty small. Yeah. Um, They're not big. And she saw that some of them, like when night fell, so when it was nighttime, she saw that some of them went into little nests of silk, which are called retreats. Oh, so spider retreat. Spider retreat. Nice. Uh, and some would hang upside down from a silk strand. And she noticed as she was watching that some, that the spiders seemed to be sleeping, uh, which Mm -hmm. is highly, scientists, we've talked about sleep before. Scientists think that every animal sleeps, but what that looks like differs in all various kinds of animals. So she was pretty sure that they were sleeping. But she noticed that they seemed to be twitching while they were sleeping. So, you know, as you do as an ecologist, she decided to write her dreams. That's my thought. Yeah. Hold on to that. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. As you do, she decided to run an experiment. Now, this is 2020. Uh, She got a bunch of, she was able to go to her lab eventually, and she was able to get a bunch of baby jumping spiders, like 135 little jumping baby spiders, okay? And had a little nursery. Have sitting around at the lab or? Well, it was for like a little nursery. She got them, she must have, I think she ordered the jumping spiders. I don't think that. Oh, okay. She like brought them in or anything like that. She just was, I don't know exactly how. How that just probably hopped on Amazon works. and ordered jumping spiders. Why not? Well, these are little babies. And the reason why she got baby jumping spiders is because when they're really young, they actually don't have any pigment in like their like exoskeleton yet. So okay. she was able to see into the spider's heads. Oh, <gasps> And the reason okay. why there's a distinct reason why she wanted to see into the spider's heads. And it was something so to do cool with, uh, it's very cool. So the reason, one of the reasons why um, she wanted to see into the, spe- uh, into the spider's heads was because she wanted to look at the spider's eyes. So because she could see into their head, she could see their eyes. Like sure. the back of their eyeballs, okay. basically. Like the back of their eyeballs. 
To give a little context about spider eyes, spider eyes are fixed. Uh, they don't have muscles like we do to be able to move their eyes in their sockets or anything like that, like we do. Uh, but they still need to have right. really good vision to be able to catch prey, or in this case for jumping spiders, to jump, uh, to gauge a jump and be able to land it. Uh, so instead, the back of a spider's eye, the retina is able to move along the back of the eye to shift the vision field. Wow, what? They're boomerang okay, shaped I have and not they heard move. That. That's super cool. Isn't that so what? cool? Nice. Now, the reason. <laughs> Very much so, yes. It's so fun. So, our retina is fixed, but our eyes can move because we have the muscles to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, this is important right, right. to know. And the reason why this is important to know is because Rusler was, through these observations, was able to find that while they are potentially sleeping, they are experiencing rapid retinal movement. Uh, yes. I was right. They're having little you spider dreams. You were right. They're having little was, spider yeah. dreams. Uh, That's so awesome. It's so So cool. similar to like the rapid eye movement you see in humans, right? Like, exactly. That's what the thought is. Awesome. So with all of this, um, when they were experiencing the rapid retinal movement, their little legs mm-hmm. would curl and uncurl and sometimes their abdomens <laughs> would wiggle around or twitch. Um, and it looked like they were practicing different movements and things like that which suggests dreams. Um, This happened multiple times throughout the night uh, with the retinal movement lasting about 77 seconds and increasing over time throughout the night and was periodic. So it happened about every 20 minutes. And then after that was done, they would wake up, they seemingly woke up for a little bit, clean themselves, and then would go back to what we assume is sleep. What makes this extraordinarily cool is that this is the first invertebrate to to be found that experiences REM-like sleep and potential dreaming. Before this, it's only been shown in vertebrate species. Rachel. That's amazing. Astounding. Isn't it so cool? I I did not make such grand contributions to science uh, advancement. I mean, oh, my free time. Neither right. did I. <laughs> well, I did um, a lot of education. Uh, I hope that inspired uh, future scientists. But wow. Absolutely. But it's so cool. Um, but honestly, that's all that I have for you this week is the fact that spiders apparently dream, which is fascinating. That's more than enough. Oh, so cool. So, yeah, I think you got enough there, Rachel. That's, uh, I, yeah. I think so, too. So I have to give credit uh, for a couple of things. First of all, my friend Adina, who sent this to me over uh, like a week ago and was like, I apparently their life goal is to be shouted out on the podcast. So Adina, congrats. You've been shouted out. This was amazing. Oh, thank you, Adina. Yeah. Uh, And then my sources were also uh, a National Geographic article as well as the PNAS article. uh, Our favorite. Our favorite scientific journal. Regularly occurring bouts of retinal movement suggests an REM-like sleep, or I'm sorry, REM sleep-like state in jumping spiders, which was published August 2022. Very nice. 
Nice. So, with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. Hey. All right, we're back. I also have a shout out to give to friend and listener Ezra, who inspired me for the topic I'm about to discuss. Um, Thanks, Ezra. Yeah. So we hear a lot about how like chimpanzees and bonobos are our closest relatives. And there's been a lot of analysis that compares their societies to human societies. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. bonobos are peaceful and have lots of sex and chimpanzees are violent and warlike, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, in many ways, humans and apes are very alike. It's true. But, uh, you know, chimps live in small groups of like 20 to 150 individuals, which is a very different scale yeah, than modern societies. Group. Yeah. That are millions and billions. I mean, um, it's kind of the scale I prefer, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, there is something in what you say, Kirk. Uh, but, you know, to live in a society with millions of people, you need to have systems deal with stuff like sanitation, food supply, defense. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So forth. They're just right. not needed in small groups like that. So, you know, to find an animal that's similar to humans in this respect, you really have to look beyond our close relatives, the apes, beyond the primates, beyond the mammals, and even beyond the vertebrate world to the ants. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So like modern humans, ants can live in very large groups of up to millions or, you know, really trillions of individuals. Mm -hmm. And they do, in fact, engage in warfare that can be incredibly destructive to the colonies involved, similar to some of the wars that humans um, have undertaken in the last couple hundred years. And in fact, I've stumbled upon some epic ant wars going on at work. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Nice. Holy cow. Well, there is, in fact, a war that has been going on for decades that results in millions of casualties every year. Um, But it is all beneath our feet and mostly beneath our notice. And I'm not going to talk about just any ants today because many ants engage in warfare and and take over territory. But today I'm going to be talking about the Argentine ant, uh, which is arguably the most successful invasive species in history. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's Latin name. Uh, hmm, this one is a little tricky. Linapithema humili, humile. All right. If Beautiful. you are struggling with a Latin name, yeah, that I tells would, me it must really be slaughter. I would something. just it would be the worst <laughs> if I tried that. <laughs> Argentine ant. That's nice and easy to say. They originally, yeah, of course, for me, they come from Argentina. And the surrounding countries. Oh, you don't say. Yes, they do. Imagine that. Uh, yeah, in their native area, they live in subtropical areas near the Parana River watershed. And, you know, in that area, they have colonies that aggressively fight each other for territory. And that, uh, that state of war against other Argentine ant colonies keeps the size of each colony in a reasonable size 
like under control. Oh, sure. They're fighting with other Argentinian ants, like the yeah. same species? Yes. Okay. And, and okay. probably okay. also other ant species, but, you know, they're fighting intercolony, interspecies warfare, or intraspecies gotcha. warfare, gotcha. I should say. Okay. However, starting in the 19th century, some of these ants managed to stow away on trading ships traveling from South America to Europe. And once there, they found that they really loved the Mediterranean climate. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And they started. What's not to like about that stifling heat? Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> it's dry heat. Um, they started spreading rapidly, and their aggressive nature meant that they were easily able to overpower the native ants in the region. In addition, they started behaving differently than they did in South America. Interesting. Yes. Instead of forming smaller colonies that fought with each other, these Argentine ants began to form enormous super colonies. Not great. Yeah. Um, But of course, Europe was also a center of trade and colonization in the 19th century. And so the Mm -hmm. ant was then transported from Europe to North America, Japan, and many other locations. Now there are super colonies in California, besides Mediterranean, California, Japan, Australia, and perhaps other locations as well. These are truly massive, mind-bogglingly massive. So the one in California stretches from San Diego to north of San Francisco. What? (laughs) 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 Um... That's not a small distance. No, it's not. And the one in the Mediterranean is even larger. It stretches more than 6,000 kilometers from Italy to the Atlantic coast of Spain. What? Yes. One colony? Okay. Yes. Hold on. So, how is that one colony? How is that possibly one colony? These are. How do you define it at that point? Multiple queen colonies. So each colony has multiple queens. So that obviously reduces the limits on their growth, their reproduction. And also a queen and a few workers can then branch off to form kind of satellite colonies that become part of the super colony. But what makes it all one colony is that they recognize each other. They do not fight each other. And they're all cooperating. Okay. Whoa. Are they all, I mean, are these all overlapping territories the entire way then? It's one contiguous no. colony. Well, right. Oh my God. That's just, that's as far wild. as I understand. Yeah. Whoa. Obviously not, you know, an ant in Spain is not going to ever talk to an ant in Italy. No, no, of course not. They, 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 they speak, speak a slightly different language. So, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, both went to the same joke well there, Rachel. (laughs) It was right there, Kirk. It was, yeah. But how is this possible? These warlike ants that are fighting each other back in Argentina and South America are getting along and cooperating in their new, new lands. So one possibility is that the initial trip to Europe was a genetic bottleneck. And, sure. you know, back in South America, mm. there is, in fact, a lot of genetic diversity among the ants. Right. And that affects their 
the chemical signatures by which they recognize each other, sniff each other out. And mm. so it's, you know, the smell of oneself, one's own colony versus the other colony. Oh, so these all, right. these all smell the same. Yeah, perhaps. Gotcha. And then, so then you're, perhaps, you perhaps, know, the ones yeah. from Europe were then distributed to other places, but, right. um, so they all get along. Right. This may not actually be accurate, though, because okay. there doesn't seem to be such extreme genetic conformity at these different locations. So, like, they've huh. some scientists have done genetic analysis within these supercolonies and found that there's some genetic variation, including at, you know, the gene locations where they think they're making their identification smells. So there was a 2002 well, paper. Darn. Okay. Yeah. Huh. There was a 2002 paper that put out another hypothesis, which is that unicolonianality, unicolony, I can't, I can't say that word. <laughs> Giant colony. Yeah. Uh, has evolved because, um, because they are in a non-native environment. Now I, this argument's a little hard to follow, but basically in the absence of natural threats, they form denser colonies because they're able to reproduce more and they don't have to expend energy fighting other colonies. Oh, because there's always more room to get to expand into. And... Yeah. And right. denser colonies um, have higher rates because you have more, more workers in a single colony. They're going to more frequently encounter workers in another colony of Argentine ants. Um, but colonies that show cooperative behavior with others of their species just wind up having greater success than aggressive colonies. So I don't totally follow the argument, but they seem to be making the argument that being in a, in a more, an environment that's easier to spread in has caused the evolution of this behavior rather than it being some kind of genetic bottleneck. Sure. Yeah. They have no such mercy for other species though. They just blitz all the other ants in their path. And in fact, uh, it's, it's caused a lot of problems, um, because I can imagine. Yeah. Native species that eat native ants, uh, you know, are not always able to eat the Argentine ants and then go on up the food chain. Right. Wow. Yeah. But the, the, just the sheer size of these Hmm. colonies is mind boggling. And the fact that they've evolved this really odd, different behavior in a different environment is also pretty fascinating. So that is what I wanted to share this week. Yeah, that's wild. Mm Mm-hmm. Dang. Cool. So that 2002 paper I mentioned was... Yeah, you're welcome. That was also in our favorite journal, PNAS, uh, by Giraud and others. And then I also um, got some helpful information from articles in Scientific American and the Smithsonian Magazine, as well as a few other sources. We are going to take a little break. And when we come back, it'll be Kirk. Hey, everybody, listener mailbag time. Uh, We got a message from one of our Mm. patrons. And let me just say, our patrons are so cool. They're so cool. They are so cool. Highest caliber of people. Uh, This one was from Mish Irish. Hey, Mish. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase a wee bit for time here. But Mish wrote to say, 
I just listened to your Invisible Squid episode. That was oh, Rachel's yeah. topic. Pretty oh, awesome. Yeah, uh, so cool. And she said, I have something to add. I work in the uh, notobiotic research in, at Penn State University. And there's another lab on campus that studies Wild. the Hawaiian bobtail squid. And I've talked with them about it. Uh, notobiotics so cool. deals with germ-free animals that we populate with known and controlled microflora. So I was interested in these squid because they hatch germ-free and then get populated with V. fisheri. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, from what I understood talking with that lab, the population size of the colony inside the squid's light mm-hmm. organ is what causes the bacteria to illuminate. Mm-hmm. And it's called quorum sensing, which I think you oh, mentioned on the, yeah, the show yeah, there. Yeah. I did, uh, yeah. So the bacteria produce a molecule, and when enough of that molecule is present, they light up. So a large population equals lights on, less population equals lights off. They vent in the morning because they spend the day buried in the sand and thus don't need to illuminate. And as we talked about, then the colony regrows by the time they emerge at night. She -hmm. says she has personally seen them bury themselves in the sand and they wiggle down in and then two little tentacles come out to brush sand over their heads. It's super cute (laughs) and also very cool. sounds so cute. Oh, Super so jealous, cool. you know, uh, how cool amazing job. that uh, you chose this topic and then one of our patrons happens to have uh, talked to the folks uh, at uh, where she works who also work with that species, who are studying it because of some of the unique uh, scientific, you know, characteristics that it has, which is uh, very, wild. very cool. Uh, so, so fun. Thank Thanks, you, Mish, Mish, for writing in and sharing. Thank you. Yeah, sh- sharing what you know about your, these, one of our strange topics. If you, yes, you listener have something to share with us, you can do so either through the Patreon app, if you are a patron, or through the Podbean app, uh, for anyone who listens on Podbean, or you can simply email us at contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. All right, everybody, how's it going? I am here today to tell you a little bit about a tiger in Thailand. A tiger in Thailand. Okay. Yeah, is this probably, a specific tiger or is it uh, it's not know. a tiger at all actually tiger in this case is an acronym uh, oh, so tiger okay. stands for Thailand Inventory Group of Entomological Research and uh, okay. so we all, all did right. insects this week which is pretty awesome that is wild uh, well yeah, spiders cool. well, I, arthropods spiders I'm yeah. sorry spiders not we all did I meant to say we did invertebrates this week that uh, so Yes. Uh, Tiger is a group of researchers interested in searching out and cataloging insects. Specifically, that's why I had insects in my brain. Uh, mm-hmm. And they want, they're doing this in Thailand. So back in 2012, oh. or around, around 2012, they collected insects in threatened habitats along the Mekong River. And the Mekong, uh, by the way, has been listed by the uh, Critical Ecosystem Partnership Fund as one of the top five critically endangered ecosystems in the world. Oof, uh, so dang. the work they're doing there is is especially important. We want to know uh, what's in that area. I hate to say like before it gets wiped out, but that's yeah. kind of how it may be. Um, we need to know what we're what trying to save there. Mm-hmm. And one of the insects, one of the many insects they collected, was a species of wasp. And this isn't all that wasp. surprising as Scientists have already identified over 100,000 species of wasps oh, in the world. That's uh, and that's so likely cool. only a fraction of how many are out there. Like, nature really loves wasps. There I are mean, lots of wasps just out there. In, I mean, this isn't a wasp, but I mean, just in the state of Minnesota, there are 
there are 500 species of native bee. So like, it doesn't surprise me that there's that many wasp species in the world. Now that they're the same. Yeah. 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 And to be, to be more specific though, it happened to be a member of a group of wasps that I've talked about before on this show. Is it the golden digger wasps? Well, in episode five, Rachel, I talked about a North American wasp that I see every summer, and you already the, guessed it. It's the golden digger wasp. Yeah. Oh, so, Kirk, as I it turns was just out, thinking about this for reasons will awesome. be uh, explained next week. <laughs> oh, next week. All right. Well, uh, it turns out uh, the species that I want to talk about uh, this week that the tiger team found is also in this same family. It's a type of digger wasp. Interestingly, I've learned that entomologists have described over 10,000 different digger wasps, just digger wasps, 10,000 of them. So simple math there means that 10% of all wasps known to science are actually types of digger wasps. That's nuts. Which is super cool. Uh, Now, digger wasps are parasitic wasps, and this one does not disappoint. Oh, good. Uh, This new species of wasp hunts cockroaches yes which is super cool i really Uh, when it finds one it uses its large (laughs) stinger to attack the cockroach and sting it right between the head and the thorax and the wasp uh, basically injects a powerful neurotoxin essentially directly into the brain of the cockroach which is uh pretty pretty wild you go wasp that is aggressive yeah (laughs) Yeah, uh, Victoria's probably got some trauma around uh, cockroaches, so she's very happy to hear that. I don't blame her. I think I said uh, back in episode five, too, that I am so grateful there are not giant digger wasps that do this to humans. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Having a wasp about half the size of my body hunt me down and shoot a neurotoxin through the back of my neck and into my brain <gasps> is not high on my list of ways to exit the earth. That uh, sounds Luckily, awful. they're very, they're, they're not huge. Uh, the golden digger wasp uh, I talked about back in episode five, uh, it stings and paralyzes crickets and grasshoppers so it can fly mm-hmm. away with them. This wasp does something a little different though. Uh, the neurotoxin doesn't immediately paralyze the cockroach, but it seems to make them unable to move where they want to move. It essentially turns them huh. into a zombie. Yay. That's zombie right. zombies. Uh, that will obey. They will obey the commands of the wasp and the researchers observed that the zombified cockroach would stop fighting and then seemed to walk into the wasp's den all on its own. How? It really, what? Well, they, that's the thing. I'm sorry. I got to tell you, they don't know. It really Ugh. wasn't clear if the wasps were somehow leading them. They weren't riding them, which is what I was kind of hoping, like, you know, right. pulling their legs and stuff. No, no, like no. Like a um, but they somehow, thing. Yeah, they were somehow leading them in. Uh, but it wasn't really clear because, you know, they were trying to collect so many insects. They weren't there necessarily to study one specific one. Uh, right. So they just got some basic information on it. So naturally, what happens next after the uh, cockroach is is in the den is kind of what happens with uh, much of all digger wasps. Uh, the cockroach becomes fully paralyzed underground where the female wasp puts one of her larvae on it. And the larva begins to feed a bit on the exterior of the cockroach before burrowing inside, uh, somehow knowing to eat the least important bits first to keep the cockroach alive as long Uh, as possible. Nice and fresh. Slowly, slowly devouring it alive from the inside. 
That's so metal. It's pretty metal, yeah. Eventually, the <laughs> larva has gone through metamorphosis and it has completely, completely eaten the entire cockroach alive from the inside out in the process. It basically just becomes like an exoskeleton that the, uh, the wasp was hanging out inside. Uh, it's pretty much as horrific as it sounds. Uh-huh. Now, I do think that's interesting, but we've already talked about something similar on the podcast. And, uh, you know, keen-eared co-hosts and listeners may have noticed I haven't actually said the name yeah, of why this particular you said the name? Didn't notice that. from Thailand. Yeah. Why haven't I said the name? Well, that's actually part of the story. Uh, because when it was first collected, mm. it wasn't given a name. And this is not uncommon. People are collecting right. stuff. To actually give something a name, it has to go off to a research institution where it can be carefully studied, figure out, mm-hmm. is this something we, a species we know, a species we don't know, if it's new, where do we taxonomically place it? Like, all this right. stuff has to happen. And sometimes it happens years after something has been um, collected, right? Often at a museum. Right. And the holotype for this species was deposited into the collection at the Museum for Naturkunde in Berlin, Germany, where it waited to be described along with, you know, probably thousands of others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that process is often something the public doesn't get to see. Um, and the result is a scientific name that neither the public nor poor podcast hosts like us are sure how to pronounce. Uh, right. And if we even if we can pronounce it, we're not sure what it means. Most of us did not take Latin as our world language in school. But this museum decided to be fun to let the public help out and choose a name for this soul-sucking parasite wasp. And the result was glorious. I'm so excited. Uh, The museum museum visitors got to learn about taxonomy Mm -hmm. and the process, and they helped vote and create one of the newest named species of digger wasp. So I present to you Ampulex Dementor. (laughs) That's so good. That's right. This That's is now good. officially the Dementor wasp, named after the soul-sucking guards <laughs> of Azkaban <laughs> Prison in Harry Potter. Very nice. <laughs> That's so cool. Good uh, job, public. Uh, which is good. Good job, public. Very cool. That is so fun. <laughs> yeah, basically, I just want to talk about the Dementor wasp. Uh, it's super cool. <laughs> so cool. Uh, you know, we talked about digger wasp before, but the fact that there's one that's Called literally named Dementor. after Dementors is. Uh. Uh, it tickles yeah. that little nerd pretty, itch pretty awesome. that we just love. Yep. Sure does. Sure <laughs> does. Uh, this was from actually not from uh, PNAS or uh, the journal you guys were looking in. This was from uh, another great journal, PLOS One. Uh, and the, uh, the uh, story is called The Soul Sucking Wasp by Popular Acclaim. Museum oh. Visitor Participation in Biodiversity Discovery and Taxonomy. Uh, and also got some information from AnimalFact.com about the... Uh, insect itself so very cool mm-hmm. uh all so you fun. harry potter nerds rejoice uh there's now an actual soul sucking dementor <laughs> prowling the planet <laughs> so fun oh thanks kirk you're Thank welcome you. it's happened you guys that's another week uh thanks for tuning in uh go ahead and you know, write us any comments you have and uh we'll see everybody next week bye see you then Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. 
If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange. <laughs>